You are my righteousness. I rest in your faithfulness. For the promises that you made to me, you will fulfill. For the promise of the Spirit I have received from you. Your word is pure and power and it is tried and true. Yeah, I am your servant humbly now. I bow to you. You are my master, creator, redeemer. Savior who loves me and us now and always will. For your sacrificial death revealed your love for me. And now all my sins you've hurled into the deep blue sea. Yes, I am your servant and I love just like you do. By laying down my life for my brother. Yes, this is what it means to love one another. To take up one's own cross and die to self. For this is what you did yourself. Oh, you are my dear friend. Your honor I defend. For you are my Lord and you're my God who gave me life. And now I lift my voice for all the world to hear. To share your love with all of those who live in fear. Yeah, I am your servant, I'll proclaim the word of truth. By teaching you're our one and only way. And you they must believe. For there will come a day When you will judge the earth With eyes of fire And crush the serpent's head The liar Oh Lord, there is no one Like you who are God's son Your death at the cross has set me free The victory is won The day will come when you reign upon the earth and we will sing to you who gave us the second birth yeah, I am your servant and I bow to worship you I worship you All right, good uh, evening. Could you turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 15, verse 14? Romans chapter 15, verse 14. As we don't normally do, we take that moment of silent prayer to prepare ourselves to hear this, what the Spirit will say to us through the teaching of the Word of God. That means applying 1 John 1, 9 if necessary, and then 
We need to apply or obey the command of Ephesians 5.18 to be filled with the Holy Spirit, which involves us bringing our thoughts into obedience to what the Spirit says to us through the teaching of the Word of God. And if there's anything that's disturbing and distracting to you, do what 1 Peter 5.7 says, cast all your anxieties upon the Lord because He cares for you. So in the privacy of our very own royal priesthood, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time to study your word. We thank you, Father, for the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ, and his sacrifice at the cross. We thank you for his willingness to die a substitutionary spiritual and physical death on the cross so that we might be free from the sin nature, the devil and his cosmic system. We thank you for the fact that he paid for all of our sins. We also thank you for the fact that he's delivered us from the sin nature. And we thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit who, when we believed in your Son as Savior, has appropriated all that your Son accomplished for us through his death and resurrection, and help us now in this ministry to uh, understand the implications of our so great salvation, and that we're crucified, died, buried, raised, and seated with your Son at your right hand, so that we can experience this victory over our three great enemies. And we can also bring glory to you and receive rewards at the Bema Seat. We just thank you, Father, for, uh, for gracing us out and treating us in a manner that we don't deserve. We thank you, Father, for this building to meet here on a consistent basis, and those who are part of this ministry, that are part of this ministry in this geographical region, and also a part of our extended congregation on the Internet. And we just pray, Father, that you would... Uh, we thank you for them and those who are in the chapel and those who might be listening to uh, Pal Talk at, uh, at this time, listening to the message through that medium or the website at a later date. We just thank you for them, and we just pray that you would give grace to the communicator, Father, this evening. Help him to deliver your full counsel in a fashion that would minister to these people. And also bring glory to you and your son, Jesus Christ. And we pray that as a result of this Bible class, we'd grow in the grace and knowledge of our precious Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And a greater love and appreciation, Father, for your, your so great, the plan of salvation. And, and including us Gentiles, along with Jewish believers, into this plan. So, Father, we pray for these things in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ's name. Amen. You should be at Romans chapter 15, verse 14. This evening, we're going to study Romans 15, 15 in this passage... Paul informs the Roman Christians that he wrote boldly in this epistle so as to remind them because of the grace given to him by God. That'll be our subject this evening. So what have we seen at the, at the end of... Uh, we did Romans 15, 13 last week. When we finished that verse, we, end, we finished actually, actually the main argument of the epistle that began in Romans 1, 16. What's interesting, this argument is Paul's presentation of the gospel. The righteousness of God is presented in the gospel, and that being Jesus Christ. And through faith in him, you can receive this righteousness of God through imputation. And we see that uh, bookending this main argument is Paul's 
um, his missionary activity. And we see in chapter 15, we're going to start seeing that he, and later on in this chapter, Paul starts talking about his missionary activity among the Gentiles. And at the beginning of the, of the epistle, in the introduction, he mentioned it as well. And uh, also in the introduction of the epistle, and now here in Romans 15, now that he's finished the main argument, he, uh, he, he, talked, he commends the Roman Christians. We saw in Romans 1.18, he said that your faith is known throughout the entire world. And then we saw uh, yes, uh, Sunday in verse 14 of chapter 15, he says, I'm totally convinced, I'm of the firm personal conviction that you're all characterized as being full of knowledge and able to admonish one another and full of goodness. So these things, he, he, and he mentions that because he wrote boldly in the epistle and he doesn't want to get them, give them the idea that he doesn't think that they're, they've been doing the things that he commanded and prohibited them from doing in the main argument of the epistle. So we've seen that Paul viewed the Roman church as an exemplary church, a church that was ex- as a corporate unit was exemplifying the Christian way of life. Not only are we to walk with, uh, by ourselves before God and walk in a manner worthy of our calling, but the Bible also presents us as walking with other believers and glorifying God. So the Roman church, contrary to what many scholars have been putting out there, uh, the Roman believers were a great church. They were characterized as being a great church. And, and uh, as I've been trying to bring out, some uh, expositors of the, the book of Romans, men I greatly respect and admire, uh, they have uh, said that the uh, Paul was involved at this point in Romans 15, 14, and 15, and involved in hyperbole, basically polite exaggeration, which is not the case at all. He, he is, as I mentioned earlier, Romans 1 8, now Romans 15 14, and then Romans 16 19, he talks about their obedience. So, what I think what individuals, these expositors are doing, is they're minimalizing the fact that the, Paul did get reports from people he commend, commended in Romans 16, which we read Sunday. Romans 16, 1 through 14, he mentions several individuals. He, he, he sends his greetings to send several individuals in Rome who he knew personally. So the, we can see that obviously he must, if he's going to commend the Roman believers throughout this epistle, Romans 1, 8, Romans 15, 14, Romans 16, 19. If he's going to do that, he must have had some information about these people because Paul was not inclined, uh, and, and, near, near, and you, can't show me, you can't show me any example in the scripture where he's blowing smoke at people and he's just flattering them. He, when he says something, he means it. And if they would, I, I think we should need to take Paul at his words. Just like when he, when he uh, went after the Corinthians and the two epistles there that he wrote to the Corinthians. Actually, he did three. But then Galatians, he went after the Galatians. So we see that, you know, Paul, when you did wrong, he told you. Whether as an individual or as a congregation. And when you were doing right, he would commend you as well. And, and so we see that Paul, even though he had never met these people, he did get reports about these people in Rome. And they were a great church. He didn't start the church, neither was, neither did Peter. Uh, I believe, and we don't know for sure historically, nor does it really matter. The point is, is that they were a great church. Well, I seem to think that when the, when the day of Pentecost and approximately June of 32 AD, it says in Acts 2 that there were Jewish believers from all around the Roman Empire, including Rome, that were there on the day of Pentecost when Peter gave his, his sermon, when he evangelized and 3,000 Jews get saved from all around the Roman Empire on the day of Pentecost. I believe they went back with the gospel there, these Jewish believers, and they proclaimed the gospel, and the gospel spread throughout the city of Rome. And uh, I think, and then also, we see that when Paul gets there in 62 AD, 
he mentions in, in the book of Philippians that it really proliferated and people, Christians were becoming even bolder and proclaiming the gospel in Rome. And it was very important because at the heart of the heathen pagan empire, Rome, was a, a core of believers that were unsung and that were getting the gospel out. And also, as we see, we brought it out su- Sunday and we'll bring it out again this evening, especially this evening. We don't know the name of the pastors there in Rome. It's not important, but they were there because Paul acknowledges the facts and recognizes the fact that what he wrote in the main argument of the epistle was just a reminder to them, which implies that they were well-taught church. And remember, they, they met in homes. So there were many homes, of course, in the city of Rome, and they met in many homes. So just like there's many churches and local assemblies in Cedar Rapids or New York City or Boston or whatever, Providence, they all, there were many churches. And that's what Paul's in this letter, is addressing them as a corporate unit, even though they met in different homes, maybe even school rooms. So this means that, that again, Paul's comments in Romans 15, 14, and, and verse 15, Romans 15, 15, all imply, make make it clear that they were a well-taught church. Now, one of the things I think it's happening is when a lot of men uh, study this uh, uh, particular book and they look at the, the Roman believers, they I think they find it hard to believe that a church could know all these things that Paul has wrote about in Romans 1.16 to Romans 15.13. I think a lot of pastors have a hard time and scholars have a hard time believing that any church could know these things. Well, maybe that's a condemnation upon pastors for not teaching this book and congregations for not knowing the things that are in the Roman epistle. Maybe that's the case. Maybe they're imposing the 21st century attitude of Christians toward the book of Romans on the first century church. And of course, that's that's what might be happening. I don't know. But either way we slice it, if you take Paul at his words, he's commending the Roman believers. And he knows about them because he got reports especially from uh, Priscilla and Aquila, who he worked with. And he, uh, when he wrote this from Corinth in 57 AD, it's interesting, he was spending the winter there in Corinth when he wrote this epistle. And he's reflecting on, he's reflecting on what God did for him in this ministry. We're going to see that later on in the epistle. And what God was doing among the Gentiles. And so uh, it's some exciting things that we get uh, coming in the future in our study of chapter 15. But this evening, as I said before, we're going to study Romans 15, 15. And Paul in this passage informs the Roman Christians that he wrote boldly in the epistle so as to remind them because of the grace given to him by God. Look at Romans 15, 14. And concerning you, my brethren, I myself also am convinced. You couldn't be any more stronger than that. Uh, than that. They convinced, the words pitho there in the, the verb, that you yourselves are, or we could say characterized, as being full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able also to admonish one another. So these believers were applying the word of God. They were taught. They had a comprehensive knowledge of the scriptures. Not only did they know it through uh, academically, but they knew it spiritually. They were spiritually comprehended the message and understood the message that Paul proclaimed and the main argument of the epistle. So notice there that he, he's being very polite and he's being very gracious with them. When he says, my brethren, he wants them to understand that he doesn't think he's above them, though he does have authority over them as, an, as a pastor and as a teacher of the word of God. He's doing this because he wants them to know that he is, uh, he, he is on, on equal footing with them and that he is a son of God 
Uh, they are sons of God, just like he's a son of God. So he's being very considerate of them. So he says in verse 14, And concerning you, my brethren, I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able also to admonish one another. But, or however, I have written very boldly to you on some points. Where? In the main argument of the epistle. So as to remind you again, because of the grace that was given to me from God. Now the statement there in Romans 15, 15, stands in contrast with the previous statement in verse 14. That's why you have the translators putting the word but there to lead off the passage. Now, in this statement in Romans 15, 15, Paul reveals to the Christians in Rome that he wrote very boldly on some points in the main argument of this epistle so as to remind them again because of the grace, i.e. his apostleship, that was given to him by God. So the contrast is between Paul's conviction about the Roman Christians as a corporate unit, that they were characterized as being full of goodness and filled with all knowledge of the Father's will and able also to instruct one another with that of why he wrote to them boldly in the main argument of the epistle. Or we could put it this way in a, in a, in a question. If Paul was of the firm conviction that the Roman Christians as a corporate unit were characterized as being full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able also to, admonish, to instruct each other, then why in the world did he write what he did in the main argument? I'll tell you why. He says why. To remind them again, which implies, obviously, if you take Paul at, Paul at his words and don't think he's getting involved in hyperbole or a gentle, uh, or a gentle uh, exaggeration, a, a polite exaggeration, he reminded them in this epistle. He wrote boldly in this epistle to remind them, which implies, obviously, that they were taught the very things he wrote them in the epistle. What can we derive from this? Every church should be taught the book of Romans, should be going through the book of Romans, and should know these things that Paul talked about in the gospel. What do we talk about in, the, in, in Paul's gospel? We've seen that the gospel's just not related to uh, directed toward the unsaved, it's also di directed toward the believer. That's quite clear because he says in, in chapter 6 and 7 and 8 are all about the believer. So the gospel is for is directed, depending on the context, could be directed toward the unsaved or the saved. And, and the gospel is the good news. Towards the unsaved is that you could get forgiveness, receive the forgiveness of your sins and be declared justified through faith alone and Christ alone. And for the believer... It's the good news that you delivered from the sin nature, Satan and his cosmic system, through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And through faith in what the Spirit says in the Word of God, you can appropriate the deliverance that is yours now because of your union and identification with Christ. So Paul is saying here that I wrote boldly. He, he, the, when he says I'm reminding you, that implies, obviously, as I said before, that they were taught the very things he wrote them in the epistle. So this means that something, this is something that's staggering, I think, to some churches, but they don't know these things that are written in the book of Romans. What do we learn in the book of Romans thus far? Well, in Romans 1, we know that Romans 1, 16 and 17, that the gospel is centered upon the person of Christ, and that and the gospel is the good news that you can have, be justified through faith alone in Christ alone, and also that you can, as a believer, experience your deliverance from sin, Satan, and this cosmic system. The righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. And from faith to faith, as we saw. 
And so the righteous man will, shall live by faith. The believer who's righteous through imputation and faith alone and Christ alone experience, uh, can experience this deliverance and his sanctification by operating in faith. So what we saw in Romans 1.18, all the way through Romans chapter 3, verse 19, that both Jew and Gentile are, are dead to God, that they are guilty before a holy God, that there's none righteous, no, not one, and that all are in need of the righteousness of God. And Romans 3.20, all the way through Romans chapter 4, we saw that Paul tells us how to get the righteousness of God. Through faith alone in Christ alone, whether Jew or Gentile, it doesn't matter what race you are. If you believe in Christ as your Savior, you receive the righteousness of God as a gift. And in chapter 4, he gives Abraham as an example of justification. And so we, then we see in Romans 5, 1 through 12, he talks about the benefits of your justification, that it's that you have peace with God and you're in, involved in a relationship with God in, in grace we stand forever, we saw. And then we get it to Romans 5, 12 through 21. Paul taught contrast our union with Adam and with uh, being under the headship of Adam and Adam prior to salvation and being under the headship of Christ after when we got converted to Christianity through faith alone and Christ alone. And we saw there that Christ negated everything that Adam did in the garden and gave us much more than Adam ever lost for us. And then from there on, he starts talking about this union with Christ even more. In Romans 6, chapter 6, verse 1, all the way to Romans 7, 6, he talks about our union with Christ, that we died with Christ, that we're raised and seated with Christ. And then chapter, uh, chapter 7, verse 7, to the end of the chapter, Paul gives an autobiographical sketch of himself where he talks about his failure, his impotency to experience and do what God has commanded. And that it reveals that he needed the spirit. He couldn't do it on his own power. And then we saw chapter 8. We, we saw the 14 affirmations of the Holy Spirit. That the Holy Spirit is the power that is needed that we can use and utilize through faith in the Word of God, we can appropriate that power of the Holy Spirit so we can experience our sanctification. And then at the end of the chapter, he talks about our assurance that we're, that we're eternally secure, that nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. And then following on the heels of that, he starts addressing the nation of Israel. Why? Because if God has been faithful to, if, if, if God says he's going to be faithful to the Christian, how can we be sure of that? Because look at Israel. Israel is, has abandoned God, or it looks like God has abandoned Israel. Can we trust God? Yes, we can. The failure of Israel, as we saw in chapters 9, 10, and 11, is Israel try to receive salvation through their own works, meritorious actions, keeping obedience to the law, and the law demands perfect obedience if you're an unsaved person and seeking to be accepted by God. And so we saw also in those chapters that the Gentile Christian owes his salvation he owes his salvation to the Jews. The Messiah is a Jew. The promises to the patriarchs, as we saw in Romans 15, verses 8 and 9, included that the gent and promises that the Gentiles would be saved and receive blessings through a descendant of Abraham, who we know is Jesus Christ, according to the book of Galatians, Galatians chapter 3, verses 14 through 19. So we saw there that we, we as believers should never be arrogant toward the Jews, and we also seen that God, because he made unconditional promises to the patriarchs, he will never abandon the nation of Israel. So there we see in those chapters 9, 10, and 11, 
about the faithfulness of God and the sovereign grace of God and the omniscience of God. And we also, we got into chapter 12. We moved from there. In chapter 12, we talked about the importance of maintaining a divine perspective, a divine viewpoint, so that we can present our bodies as a living and holy sacrifice to God that's pleasing to Him. And then on the heels of that, Paul talks about humility and operating in your spiritual gift. Then Romans 12, 9, to the end of the chapter, he talks about operating in love. And, and he issues various prohibitions and commands. Chapter 13, 1 through 7, he talks about the Christian's relationship, how the righteousness of God functions in relations to the civil authorities and the Christian's responsibility. This is all, people, a part of the gospel. And then we see in chapter 13, verses 8 through 10, he talks about operating in love. Love does no wrong to his neighbor. And then 11 through 14 of that chapter, he talks about living in light of the imminent return of Christ at the rapture. Living as if he could come back at any moment. Chapter 14, Paul deals with uh, the issues of between the weak and the strong in relation to non-essentials, and he tells the strong to operate in love. He tells them to operate in love, and he tells the weak to be educated in the word of God. And we see that will maintain unity. So that chapter was very practical. And that was in chapter 15, 1 through 7, is connected to that chapter. And in those verses, chapter 15, verses 1 through 7, Paul gives Christ as an example of someone who denied himself and sacrificed for, for the good of others. Given an example for the strong believer to sacrifice and deny himself of his Christian freedom to eat all foods while he's in the presence of the weaker believer. And then... We get into Romans 15, 8, 9. He talks about, the, the, again, about the promises. Christ came, became a servant to the Jews in order to fulfill the because of God's faithfulness to those promises, to fulfill those promises to the patriarchs. In order to confirm the promises to the patriarchs, Christ became a servant to the Jews and also so that the Gentiles might glorify God. And to support that from verses 9, uh, the second statement in verse 9 all the way to verse 12, he quotes Old Testament scriptures to show both Jew and Gentile that it's in the Old Testament scriptures that the Gentiles will glorify God along with Jewish believers. And, th- and th- so that's, and then, we, and then and at the end of the thing, he offers up, he relates a prayer in verse 13 of chapter 15. He relates a prayer that he made to the Roman believers concerning them. So this is the gospel we learn. I just gave you, I summarized for you what we've been learning for the last four years. And that is the gospel. Now, how many churches know that? Hey, this church has been taught this. It has no excuse now. It's been taught, it's been taught that the main argument of the epistle, the gospel, it's all there in audio, thanks to Titus. It's all in written form, in detail. And it's all there if you want to know it. And we should know it. Because we, Paul thought it very important. These things he was teaching, those, these things he was teaching in the main argument of the epistle are very important. And the Roman churches knew it. Even though they weren't taught by Paul or Peter or any apostle for that matter, they knew these things. The pastors in Rome were teaching them these things. Every church should know what this book has to say. Every book should have, no, Every church should know this and it's a, it's a condemnation of pastors and churches for not knowing this book. You, might, you won't draw a big crowd when you teach the book of Romans. <laughs> you won't draw a big crowd. And because most people today, as Paul predicted in 2 Corinthians 4, 
Uh, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, they want their ears tickled. Tell me about dating relationships and marriage. Tell me about prophecy. Tell me something how to make money. Tell me, tell me how to raise my kids. And the Word of God says that about all those things. But we saw in chapter, in the main argument of the epistle, that Paul was teaching about some very important things that we need to concentrate, that contradict what churches are concentrating on today. You can't worship, worship God if you don't know God. And I'll say this, the more, if you know this epistle and you were faithful studying it, you know the plan of God and you have the information now to bring glory to God to the maximum. So this is something, when Paul says, if we look at this question, if Paul was of the firm conviction that the Roman Christians as a corporate unit were characterized as being full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct each other, then why did he write what he wrote in the main argument? The answer again is to remind them again, which means repetition for them. And it implies, obviously, that they were taught the very things that he wrote them in the epistle. I wonder if you gave a study and go to different churches in Cedar Rapids and around this country, I wonder if you gave them a quiz on the Book of Romans, could they answer some of the questions? Could they answer the questions about chapters 9, 10, and 11? What, is those, what do those chapters mean? Because it talks about the fact that God has not abandoned Israel. But a lot of churches involved in covenant theology think that, Israel, that the church is the new Israel. We see chapters 9, 10, and 11. You couldn't come with that conclusion. You couldn't ever come to that conclusion if you study those three chapters of the book of Romans. You could never get involved in anti-Semitism if you read those chapters. And you would never think you could lose your salvation if you read the book of Romans. Never, you, could, you, could, you could never think that you could lose your salvation if you believed what Paul said in the book of Romans. Yet there are churches that, that think that you could lose your salvation and then teach that. So... I wonder how many churches would know these things. I, don't, I, I would make a good, serious bet, and I would bet my bank account on it. Not that that's a lot. But I would bet that there's not many that know these things in the city of Cedar Rapids and the surrounding areas or many, majors, many cities in this country. They don't know these things. And I know pastors that are teaching this book, and thank God for them. Because wherever this book goes and wherever it's taught, it's brought blessing. So I, that's what my prayer is. Uh, that, that that will happen out here. Now, look at it says in Romans fifteen fifteen again. But I have written very boldly. I have written is the word grapho. And it's an aris active indicative form of that verb. And the word is means to write. It's correctly translated. Now, the aris tense of the, this verb is not what we call an epistolary aris in which this, the author self-consciously describes his letter from the time frame of the audience. Rather, it's what we call an immediate past or dramatic aris Used of, event, used of an event that happened rather recently, since it refers back to the main argument of the Roman epistle contained in Romans 1.16 all the way to Romans 15.13. So when he says, I have written, he's referring to the main argument of the epistle. That's what he's referring to. Then he says, it's written to you. I have written to you boldly. You is the Roman believers. The word is the pronoun see, and it's used in a distributive sense, meaning each and every one of you. It means that when Paul wrote what he wrote in this epistle, it was designed to go to each and every one of the Roman believers. What they would do, the letter would come in. We saw that Phoebe would bring, or as they say in English, Phoebe, would bring this letter, come in from Corinth, she'd come in into Rome, and they would read this letter, and they would make copies of it. And each of the pastors would get this letter, and they would read it. 
to the uh, to the churches. We know this from church history. And Paul says this in his own epistles. He says, make copies and send them around. Read, make sure all the churches in an area read this epistle. Like the book of Ephesians. Uh, the Ephesians was it was basically a circular letter. It went to all the churches. It wasn't just directed to Ephesus. It was actually directed to all the churches in that area. And so it would get thrown. If you read some of Paul's epistles, you know he says, "I want you to make sure that this group reads this letter. Make sure it's been passed around." And that's what that's what uh, Phoebe would do. Phoebe would go in there, and she would they would make copies of it. They'd read this epistle, and it was written. Paul was writing to them, each and every one of them. Directly, So this word to you is the personal pronoun C. It's used in a distributive sense, meaning each and every one of you. And it refers to each and every member of the body of Christ in Rome, without exception, regardless of race, gender, or social status. Now the word functions as a date of advantage, indicating that what Paul wrote previously in the Roman epistle, in the main argument that appears in Romans 1.16 to Romans 15.13, was for the benefit of of each and every one of the Roman believers without exception. Therefore, for us in the 21st century, we are here at Prayer Review Christian, we study the main argument of the epistle. We have over 500 hours of the main argument of the epistle. And we this was for the benefit of us. This was for the spiritual benefit of this congregation. Not only myself, but also this, this particular congregation. So this tells us the word of God is to benefit us. The word of God, which Paul communicated in this Roman epistle, is to benefit us as believers. We can't grow to spiritual maturity without the word of God. We can't, if we don't know our Bibles, then we can't apply what he, because God's will is in the word of God, and the Spirit reveals the will of the Father in the word of God. Now, if we don't know our Bibles, then we're never going to be able to glorify God. That is the priority, is to grow to spiritual maturity, and bring glory to God. But we can't do it without the word of God. We need to be taught. Pastors need to have the guts to stand up there and teach verse by verse the Bible and to go through the different books, regardless of whether it's going to draw a crowd or not. That's not the point. We're to be faithful in season and out of season, and we're to teach these things. Because this is what proves to God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who is God, that you love your congregation. You know, the Lord told Peter, if you love me, Peter, feed my lambs. And that's talking about the word of God. Matthew 4, 4, man does not live on bread alone, but from every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So your pastor doesn't, you know, you know, people talk about, you know, with pastors today. One of the many reasons why pastors are not teaching the book of Romans is they're busy doing things that they shouldn't be doing. That people with their other spiritual gifts should be doing, such as counseling. The person who's got the gift of encouragement he is the capacity or she is the capacity to, to counsel another believer. That's what the gift of encouragement is all about. Yet you get pastors counseling. And I know people that don't go to our church probably because I'm, I don't counsel married couples. Well, I do if you sit here and listen to the word of God. How many times have I talked about the doctrine of love? A trillion times, gazillion times. Why don't they apply that? No, but people, people want their ears tickled. They want special attention. You know, and also a lot of, you know, when we, when we talk about uh, that, the importance of the Word of God, sadly, the people don't see the value of the Word of God. Christians don't see the value of the Word of God today. And it's a sad thing. We know that they don't think, they don't see the value of it because churches that are teaching the Word of God are not filled. They're not filled. 
They should be if they valued it. And words speak louder than your, your actions speak louder than words. A lot of people say they, they appreciate the word of God, but they don't come and hear it. They don't put, they don't show the respect that the word of God deserves when it's being taught. They should be there. And, you know, the sad thing is, it says in, it says in, uh, in, in back in, uh, Malachi, I think it is, that there was a famine for the word of God. And one day there might be a famine in this country of the word of God. That would be the worst thing that ever hit this country. Worse than whatever political party you think is the worst thing that ever happened. No, the word of God not being proclaimed from this country, in this country would be the, the death knell of it. In fact, it's still being proclaimed and it's not being listened to and it's not, and it's being ignored and it's not being paid attention to. It's not getting the respect that it deserves. God's word demands respect. It should get the respect. And if we're not careful in this country, it can be taken away. It can be taken away and given to somebody who would appreciate it. So we see Paul saying here, I, the word of God is very important. I wrote to you very boldly for the benefit of each and every one of you. When it says to you, it's a, a dative of advantage, this word. It means for the benefit of each and every one of you. Hold your place. Go to second, look at second Timothy chapter three. Second Timothy chapter three, look at verse sixteen. Second Timothy chapter three, verse sixteen, all scripture is inspired, theonoustos, it means God-breathed. All scripture is inspired by God, we can say God-breathed, and is what? Profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. So when Paul says in Romans 15, 15, that I wrote very boldly to you in the main argument of the epistle, I wrote it for the benefit of each and every one of you. That's what the date of an advantage is. What's it benefic- what is it beneficial for? He tells us, for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped to every good work. And as we saw in Ephesians four eleven through 16, the communication gifts, and, and the pastor is one of those communication gifts, is given to the body of Christ so that they can grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ, so that they can be equipped to operate in their spiritual gifts. So without the word of God, and without a pastor communicating the word of God, you cannot glorify God and grow to spiritual maturity. Every believer has been assigned a pastor, 1 Peter 5, 3. And you're to obey your leaders. It's in Hebrews 13, 17. And you're supposed to honor your pastor. They're worthy of double honor, those who are speaking and teaching the word of God. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 to 13. You can't obey those commands if you don't think you have a pastor. So the word of God is very important. Now look at it keeps going. Keep, look at chapter 4, verse 1. Keep going. So he says, to, uh, he says to Timothy, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge, the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, that means proclaim it, as a herald. Be ready in season and out of season, when it's popular and when it's not being, uh, nobody's coming. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. Why? 
For the time will come, and it's already here, when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires, and will turn away their ears from the truth, and will turn aside to myths. And the Roman church was not like that. The Roman church is contrary to a lot of churches in the world today, in America and around the world today, who, who uh, basically are not enduring sound doctrine like the first century Roman church did. They knew the main argument of the epistle. There are some pastors that don't even know the main argument of the Roman epistle. And don't know their way around it. That's, 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 a, that's a bad, bad state of affairs in our country. But you, he says, be sober in all things. Endure hardship. Anytime you're teaching the word of God, you're going to endure hardship. And that, that means financial problems. That might involve your threats to your life. It might involve, it's going to involve loneliness and detachment from people. This is all a part of being a pastor. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. Now go back, go back to Romans. Go back to Romans chapter 15, verse 15. Romans 15, 15. But I have written very boldly, he says, to you, or for the benefit of each and every one of you, on some points. On some points refers to certain portions of the main argument that appear in Romans 1, 16 to Romans 15, 13. And specifically, it means, it refers to those passages in which Paul commands or prohibits the Roman Christians. This is indicated to us in that Paul was writing to the Roman Christians whom he didn't evangelize, he had not yet taught them the word of God because he had not yet met them. Thus to command people or prohibit the Roman Christians to a certain course of conduct would on the surface appear bold. However, he was an apostle. He had that authority. In fact, he was compelled by the Spirit to do what he did in the main argument of the epistle. Thus he did have the authority to command or prohibit the Roman Christians. He had that right to do that. However, Paul chooses to use this type of language here with the Roman Christians because he's being polite and he's being thoughtful and he's being considerate of them, demonstrating that he cared for them. Now look at it says again, he says, but I have written very boldly to you on some points and then we have the phrase, so as to remind you again. Now that phrase, so as to remind you again, is composed of several words. We have the comparative particle Os, which is translated so as, and then we have the participle form of the verb epanamanisko. Epanamanisko means to remind again, and the, with it, its direct object is the accusative plural form of the personal pronoun C. Now, the comparative particle os marks the manner in which Paul taught boldly, that it identifies as writing. He had, this word marks the manner in which Paul taught which Paul identifies for us as writing boldly to the Roman Christians and those parts of the main argument which contain commands and prohibitions. Now, this verb, epanamanisko, it means to remind again, and it's used with Paul as its subject and the Roman Christians as its object, indicating that Paul wrote boldly by issuing prohibitions and commands in the main argument so as to remind them again of their Christian responsibilities. It means repetition. He taught them through repetition. And so they heard this. They didn't sit there like some believers today will do. Oh, I heard this. I heard the doctrine of justification. And like, you know it all. 
Maybe you haven't you haven't even heard what I have to say, or it could be another pastor who's speaking. And it's like, well, oh, so you know what this guy's going to say before he says it? Were you omniscient? You know, it's like some people get this. Uh, I call it uh, this so-called doctrinal arrogance. I think they like to call it. They think they're smarter than they really are, and they show that they're not smart and wise by their conduct and the way they talk and their attitude toward pastors when they're teaching the Word of God. Just shut up and listen to the guy. Hear him out. You don't know everything. I, no pastor knows everything. We're always learning, and we're always learning. We should be learning, and therefore we're going to convey to you things that you probably never heard before unless you're a student in the original language like he is. So this verb, which is translated remind you again, or excuse me, to remind again, it's, a, it's used with Paul as its subject, and the Roman Christians as its object, indicating that Paul wrote, wrote boldly by issuing prohibitions and commands in the main argument so as to remind them again of their Christian responsibility. So it was very important. Jesus taught repetitiously. Uh, all, that was what they taught in the first century, how they taught, the apostles did. It was the, how people learned. You know, not everybody could read, but they listened. They were very, they were an oral, they were, they had a lot of oral traditions. They were very, uh, they could hear, they listened, they were better listeners than we are today in the 21st century. Because in television, the internet, we're very visual, and our, and our, and our, uh, the discipline of listening and hearing is very difficult for people today. You guys are unusual. You could sit here for an hour. And listen to the word of God because you have been trained, you've trained yourself and the spirit has trained you to sit there and be disciplined and listen and not sit off there and drift off into never, never land. And a lot of pastors, and they, you know, I read a lot of books on, on the word of God and the teaching the word of God and studying it ad infinitum. And one of the things I find out with some of these guys is that you're actually not helping your congregation when you're always... You know, we say, well, the first 20 minutes, that's when the congregation is going to hear you. And then the last 40 minutes, they're probably not going to listen to you. Oh, you know, because they only have, they only get so much at the beginning. Well, how about training them so that they can listen for a whole hour? Because Paul taught all night. The Lord taught all the time. He teach all day. People teach, Paul taught all night one time in the book of Acts. He would teach for hours. I know people who teach in Africa and they would teach for hours in Africa and never lose the attention of the audience. In America, they can't handle 20 minutes or not, you know. I mean, that's, 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 that's what you call being weak mentally. And, you know, we get a lot of, it, because of the television generation, and we're so visual, our, we don't listen. We don't, we're not disciplined in listening to people. We don't listen to each other. That's the other thing we don't do. That's another story for another day. So the personal pronoun that's serving as the object for this word, verb, epanamenisco, 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 that's how you say it. That is a big, long word. And I, I was working on the pronunciation today and still stumbled over it. But that verb, this particular word, is has as its object the personal pronoun C, and it's used in a distributive sense again, meaning each and every one of you, and it refers to each and every member of the body of Christ in Rome, without exception, regardless of race, gender, or social status. Now, he says, I have written very boldly to you for the benefit of each and every one of you on some points so as to remind you again, and he tells them why. Because of the grace, because of the grace that was given me from God. Because of the grace is composed of the preposition via, and that's translated correctly because of. And then we have the articular accusative form of the noun aris, which is translated grace. Now, 
the word aris, grace, refers to the unmerited blessing, gift, commission, office that Paul received the moment he was declared justified through faith in Christ, which he identifies as his office as an apostle, which is indicated and in that he says that he's using this grace when he issued commands, prohibitions, and the main argument. He used this noun, aris, grace, in the same manner in Romans 1, 5, 12, 3, 1 Corinthians 3, 10, Galatians 2, 8, and Ephesians 3, 2, and 7, and 8. Uh, hold your place. Let me show you this. Go to Romans 1, 1, please. Let me see, uh, let me show you how, how this word grace is used for Paul, the gift of apostleship that Paul received from the Lord the minute he was declared justified through faith alone and Christ alone. It's used this way in Romans 1.5. Look at Romans 1.1. 1, 1. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the son of God with power, by the resurrection from the dead, according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship. When he's talking about, remember we have the figure of Hendiatus there, it's the spiritual gift of apostleship. To bring about, why did God give him this? To bring about the obedience of faith, which among the, all the Gentiles, for his namesake. Look at Romans chapter 12. Look at verse 1. Romans 12, 1, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. For through the grace, Aris, given to me, I say to every one of you, through my apostleship that was given to me by God, I say to every one among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think. So notice there, he's saying, because God gave me this grace, this gift, I am giving you this information. I'm telling you through my spiritual gift, this gift of apostleship. And it's interesting that Paul uses the term aris, grace, to describe this spiritual gift of apostleship. He's doing it for a reason. See, the, the uh, and I'll show you in a minute. Now, this word, go back to Romans 15, 15. I want to show you something that's also quite interesting. which I'm going to find an application for pastors for in a minute. The same principle applies to pastors and their gift. But look at, look at it says in Romans 15, 15, it says, but I have written very boldly to you at some point, so as to remind you again, because of the grace that was given to me from God, assigned to me from God, this word grace, again, is talking about his spiritual gift. Now, the noun aris, grace, here in Romans 15, 15, functions as the object of the preposition thea which functions, functions as a marker of cause. And what does that mean to us? It's very important because it indicates that Paul issued commands and prohibitions in the main argument because of his spiritual gift of apostleship. Paul could have used the preposition uh, with uh, the genitive form of this noun, aris, as he did in Romans 12, 3, which we just studied, which would emphasize that Paul wrote boldly to the Romans by means of or through his spiritual gift. But he doesn't use the noun aris, grace, 
in the genitive form. He uses it in the accusative form to denote cause because he wants to emphasize with his readers that the responsibility being given, of being given the spiritual gift of apostleship caused him to issue commands and prohibitions to the Roman Christians, or in other words, it required that he do so. Now, you just heard me read 2 Timothy not long ago, chapter 4. And Paul was writing to a pastor, Timothy. And he told him to rebuke. And you saw all that stuff. And to instruct, you know, good times and bad times. That's my, that's, I'm required to do that. See, what Paul's saying when he says, because of grace, that causal idea emphasizes to the reader that Paul... It required his responsibility of having the gift of pastor, of, of being apostle. It required that he pro, issue prohibitions and commands to these people and the main argument in the epistle. And the application is for pastors because we got a spiritual gift of communicating the word of God like Paul did. And we don't have the authority that Paul did, but we do have authority over the local assembly that God has called us to. And we're, we have the responsibility to do the very things Paul commanded Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 4, which we just read earlier. I have to do that. That's why there's some things I say from the pulpit that I know are whacking people. I have to say it. Whether I lose them and I can't, I can't stop, I have to do it. I have responsibility. I'd rather, get, I'd rather get chewed out and get hate mail from people or people leave our ministry than get, stand before the Lord, my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ at the Bema seat, and, and hear him say that I didn't do what I was supposed to do. That I was soft, that I was a people pleaser, that you didn't please me, you didn't warn them like you should have, well, I'm warning them. And I warn them here because that's my responsibility. Hey, Paul was reminding the Roman believers he never met. When you have the, the, the nature of being a communicator of the word of God, whether you were an apostle like Paul or a teacher of the word of God, it demands that you have a responsibility to issue commands and prohibitions according to what the Spirit says in the Word of God. You have that responsibility. You're not a politician. You're not a social director. You're a teacher of the Word of God. You have to, and that means you have to endure hardship because sometimes if you read any of the, you read the prophets, you read the apostles, anybody who taught the Word of God would have, has to endure hardship because you're teaching truth and people don't want many times don't want to hear the truth. The devil doesn't want you to teach truth. The sin nature doesn't want to hear truth. So you're up against it. But you've got to persevere, like Paul told Timothy, and keep going. And like the, like the Apostle Paul, pastors have also been given a spiritual gift to communicate the word of God. Based upon grace policy, God's grace policy, that means you don't earn it or deserve it. But it, what it means, though, is that you have responsibility to get the word of God out. And rebuke, if necessary, command, that's your responsibility according to the word of God. This is what Paul's saying. I had to do it. I was impelled to do this. I had to write boldly, even though I've never met you people. I have to write boldly to you. Issue commands and prohibitions to remind you again. Because that's my responsibility, he's saying. Because of the grace given to me from God, he's saying it's my responsibility. I have to do it. So the prepositional phrase here, because of grace, indicates by, by issuing these commands and prohibitions in the main argument, Paul was exercising his apostolic authority. However, even though, even though he was exercising 
his apostolic authority by issuing these commands and prohibitions, he's also informing the Romans that this authority was given to him as a gift by God. And that would indicate that he didn't earn or deserve the gift, and thus he did not earn or deserve this authority as an apostle. Same thing with a pastor. We don't earn or deserve anything. We are given, it to, given this gift by the grace of God. We're not better than anybody else. It's just the grace of God. We didn't earn and deserve it, and that was God's plan for us. And I know some people say, "Whoa, I'd love to be a, I'd like to be a pastor." And you know, you wouldn't want to be a pastor. You bet. I tell you what, if you you want to be a pastor, you better really love the Word of God because you can't. You can only fake it for so long. <laughs> you know, you either love it and you'll stick with it because you love it. Because you love God's people, you love the Word of God, you love teaching, you love studying, you love you like the whole idea of it. It it it, it that otherwise, if you not don't have that love, you won't make it. You will not survive. You'll be another casualty. You'll either become an alcoholic, a drug addict, or you'll just quit the ministry and do something else. With you make you know, but you you got to have the gift. You can't. You, you know, you can only do... And some guys fake it by not teaching the Word of God and make up the, the rules for pastors and not following the rules, rules of the Word of God. But you can't, you can't do that. You're going to have to give an account to the Lord for that. So, we, you know, it's, it, we don't earn or deserve it. You know, it, says in, it says in James chapter 3, let not many of you become pastors, teachers. You know, we're under a stricter... One, we're under a stricter, uh, stricter uh, code than you guys are. Because we're the teachers. Okay? So, and then there's a whole other genre of things. I never forget when I got ordained, my, the man who was my pastor looked at me and said, you sure you want to do this? And I, I, my response to him was, if I don't do it, then I'll be under discipline. I'd be, I'd be rejecting the will of God for my life. I'm impelled, I'm compelled to do it. Did I seek out to be a pastor? No. And Paul would say, I didn't seek out to be an apostle. Why? I, I was looking to persecute Christians. I had, God had other plans for me. I was going the other direction. I had other plans for myself. So it's all grace. And, you know, what Paul's saying here is that I'm not better than you. I'm, 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 I mean, he's not saying because of the apostle. I wrote boldly to you in the main argument of the epistle, giving you commands and prohibitions, though I never met you face to face. And even though I'm not your pastor, I do have that authority but he couches it in language that's very humble. He calls his spiritual gift, not apostleship, but grace. Which would tell the reader, Paul is looking at himself from the right perspective. An attitude of humility. He's not better than them. He's just been given the gift. A gift that he didn't earn or deserve. Thus, Paul's not being arrogant here, but humble. And that he recognizes that this, is, this authority was given to him from God. And this, in the same way, in the same way, same way that he views his authority as a gift from God to serve others, so also he wants his readers to view their positions in the body of Christ as a gift from God designed to serve others. That's the implication here. And then we finish off the verse with the last prepositional phrase. Look at verse 15. But I have written very boldly to you on some points, so as to remind you again, because of the grace that was given me from God. From God is another prepositional phrase. We have the preposition epo, translated correctly from, and then we have the articular form of the noun, which is very familiar to us, theos, translated God, referring to the Father. The noun theos, refer, theos refers to the Father and not the Son or the Spirit because the preposition epo plus the genitive form expresses ultimate agency and not intermediate agency. 
which thea plus the genitive would express. Thus, even though the Lord Jesus Christ authorized the Spirit to assign the spiritual gift of apostleship to Paul, this word God here in Romans 15, 15 does not refer to either the Son or the Spirit, but rather the Father. Why? Because the Scriptures plainly teach us that the Father is the ultimate authority who sent the Son and the Spirit for the benefit of Paul and all believers in Christ. So, what he's saying here is that my gift, this grace was given to me, which I exercised in the main argument of this epistle, was given to me from God, a part of his grace policy, in particular God the Father. So what we see here in the verse, in verse 15, he's saying, I've written very boldly to you on some points, and that's in the main argument of the epistle. Some points is referring to what? The commands and prohibitions that he had, which would seem quite bold for somebody who has never met them, the Roman believers. So that's why he calls that being bold. So, because he never met them. So he's saying, I wrote very boldly to you, commanding you, prohibiting you, and the main argument of the epistle, so as to remind you again. And why did I have to remind you again? Because that's the grace of God working in me. That's my spiritual gift. I am responsibility to do that. That's why God gave me the gift of apostleship, is to do that, to teach you. Even if it, you heard it before, I still have responsibility to teach it, he's saying. So here we have, as we look at, finished off verse 15 this evening, a couple things I want to put together, verse 14 and 15 together. We see here that the Roman church was a great church, contrary to what a lot of Bible scholars say. If we take Paul at his word, he says in verse 14 that he's convinced, and he can't be any more emphatic of this, he's of the firm personal conviction that the Roman believers are characterized as being full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able also to admonish one another. And even though he thinks that of them, now the question arises, as we saw earlier in the evening, well, if that's the case, Paul, then why did you write boldly to us in the, in the main argument of the epistle? And he tells them why, in verse 15, to remind you again. Why did I have to remind you again? Because that's my gift. That's, my, that's the grace of God, this, the gift of apostleship that was given to me from God the minute I trusted in Christ as my Savior. That's what my responsibility is. That's what God requires me to do. So the Roman church is a great church, and it, we, it, we should hold them up. The scripture, the Holy Spirit, is holding them up to say, for us as a church to, to shoot after, to shoot after. And that's my prayer. You know, I pray for my congregation every day like I'm supposed to, and this is one of the things I'm always praying for. And uh, so this is something that all churches should strive for. Here's a, you know, a church, you know, we're, you know, we don't have apostles teaching us, but we do have the Holy Spirit and men given the gift to pass the teacher. And those men who are faithful are there to get a con- to, to educate a congregation, to give, to nourish them spiritually with the word of God so that they can become a church like the Roman church here in the 21st century. It's within the realm of possibility. It can happen, and God expects it to happen of churches because he's given us everything that we need. Every church is it's given, he's given us, here in the 21st century, every church has the capacity to be just like the Roman church in the first century. You got the gift to pass the teacher, and you got the gift of the Holy Spirit, all believers. There's no excuse that all churches can't be like this one in the first, in the first century that Paul wrote to, though he had never met and greatly anticipated meeting. And he had re- greatly admired. So this is a church that we to hold up as an ex- the spirits hold it up for us as a church and all churches as an example 
to follow. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time to study your word. We thank you for those who are here in in the chapel this evening. And we pray, Father, that this message would be a great blessing to those, not only in the chapel, but those who might be listening on Paltalk or listening at a later date or viewing this class at a later date on the website. And we just pray, Father, that it would help them and it would instruct them and nourish them and rebuke them if necessary. And uh, we just pray, Father, that it would bless our church and, and other believers throughout this country and the world now and in the future. And we just, uh, again, we just thank you and praise you for another day. We thank you for your word and the spirit and revealing your plan for our lives, Father. Not only as individuals to become like your son, Jesus Christ, but also as a corporate unit, how we should, and thank you for this study in Romans 15, 14 and 15, about the Roman church. And we just pray, Father, that we, we here, the prayer of you could accept that challenge and begin to try to be just like that church in the first century. In our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.